All right, so this morning, if you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Romans chapter 1. Uh, welcome this morning. I am super excited to get into God's Word this morning. I don't think Ryan could have said it any better when uh, like he just said, let's get to work. You know, let's, let's just get, get started. And um, the graphic for the book of Romans that we are going to be using going through this, um, I, I gave Dan a concept. Uh, I just told him like freedom in Christ, like chains being broken, uh, the gospel and uh, doctrine and discipleship and then putting it into practice. And this is what he came up with. And I just think that that's pretty fantastic because I think it encapsulates so much of the book of Romans. So if you're visiting this morning, what we're doing is we are going through the book of Romans. We just started last week. And so what we need this morning is God's grace and we need the Holy Spirit to help us understand. So let's pray. Father, this morning, uh, we are inadequate. I'm inadequate to be the messenger of this message And Lord, we are inadequate to be the recipient and understand these things unless your Holy Spirit helps us. So God, we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would give utterance, take these words, God, and use them in power. And then Lord, we also pray that they would land on receptive hearts, that hearts would be open, help us to understand your word. And God, as we cover some difficult territory this morning, I would just pray that when we hear your word, that it would not be with hearts of resistance. That God, should your word convict us or show us an area where, where we have been in error, that very quickly we would come into alignment with you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Book of Romans uh, this morning, Not Ashamed of the Gospel is the title of the message. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, in his commentary, just a great Bible scholar, said there is no telling what may happen when people begin to study the epistle to the Romans. And again, I believe that it could be a, a turning point in many of our lives. So this morning, we, we have to engage. The Holy Spirit will teach us, but we have to engage in the word of God. We have to do our part to think, to be open, to press in, and to, to ask the Lord to speak to us. Remember that Paul the apostle was writing to Rome from Corinth on his third missionary journey. And, and Rome was the center of the world at the time. You've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Culture, language, um, art, um, all of those things, they happened in Rome. And as goes Rome, so goes the rest of the world. You think about maybe uh, a city like New York, right? Like Manhattan, it's kind of like, or in Europe, fashions. Um, they, they, I don't know this, but I hear fashions come out and then there's a fashion show and whatever happens in Paris, then that happens later on um, in other parts of the world. The same thing can be true with, with, um, with thoughts. Well, Rome was this center of the world at the time. And so Paul had this desire to reach Rome and to write to them even before he met with them. And this is the same Rome where they fed Christians to the lions in the Roman Colosseum. This is the same Rome where where Caesar was Lord. Not Jesus Lord, but Caesar was Lord. It was the Rome where uh, pomp and circumstance and pride, and when the emperor would come riding in, there would be a parade to him. People would bow down to him. The emperor had ultimate authority and power. Uh, This is Rome where gladiators fought and emperors conquered the world. And it's the place where there was a church that was established. There were a group of faithful followers of Christ, and Paul is writing this letter to them really giving them what he would want to give them before he meets with them. He wants them to understand the gospel. He wants them to understand this is our relationship with God. He wants them to understand now, after understanding what God has done for us, this is how we should live. So the book of Romans is an incredible, incredible book. And last week we went through chapter 1, verse 15. So pick it up with me here in verse 16. Paul writes this, inspired by the Holy Spirit. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So not ashamed of the gospel. Verses 16 and 17, if you don't have them underlined in your Bible, you can underline them or circle them. These two verses have uh, an uh, 
inordinate amount of, of truth and, and basically of weight in the gospel um, and in the book of Romans. Because these two verses are really the theme of the whole book. The whole book is going to be expounding upon verses 16 and 17. We're going to find out what this means that Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. What is the gospel? just want you to think about that. What is the gospel? Sad thing, um, a couple of years ago, um, Barna did this survey. And uh, what George Barna and his group does is they, they do these uh, surveys. They try to get a pulse on where people of faith and the culture and the church is today. And one of the things they found out is that most people, most people that attend a Christian church cannot explain or define the gospel biblically. In fact, many people, in fact, many, many people that came through youth group and grew up in children's ministry, went to church for a long time. They, they can't really define what the gospel is. So this morning, this is all important to us. It's not only all important to us, this is all important to God because God wants us to understand the gospel. The word gospel, because um, we've heard it in so many different ways, it, it simply is the good news, but it's more than that. Uh, we have a category in the Grammys today, best gospel singer. So sometimes we think of gospel as those that sing lyrics that are kind of like Christian lyrics. It's almost like a style like gospel singers. But that word gospel was a word that was used before Jesus even came onto the scene. The word gospel was a word that simply meant a herald would go out, you know, and they would blow the trumpet, like, burr, 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 and that person, the herald would announce the gospel. And usually the gospel was that Rome has conquered another city. So the good news, supposedly, for that place would go out that we have a new emperor or uh, Rome has conquered this part of the world. So when the term gospel started to be used for the good news of Christ, it was in direct contradiction to the good news that was proclaimed in the world. Because Jesus is king is a lot different than Caesar is king. So this gospel, um, this newsflash, think of it as um, you're watching your favorite sporting event. Uh, it's the Super Bowl or whatever you're watching. And all of a sudden, you know, it says newsflash. Everything is interrupted. Everything stops. Maybe you remember um, on 9-11, you couldn't turn the channel to any channel on the television. You couldn't turn on the radio to any station on the radio without that being the news, newsflash. And that wasn't good news, but it was a newsflash. And this morning, when we consider the gospel, this newsflash is that the gospel of Christ, it's something that was going to be so strong and so powerful that the very message of the gospel would save people. This very message was the message that would cause people to go from death to life. In fact, in all of the Bible, the book of Romans includes the word gospel 11 times which is more than any other book of the Bible except for the book of uh, Galatians, Galatians 11 times also. So you see these two letters that, that the Holy Spirit has inspired that really explain what the gospel is. And notice that this gospel, where it says in verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Notice it's not a message of four spiritual laws alone. Although if you've ever learned the four spiritual laws, then, then you know that that's a part of the gospel. Um, it's not a, a five precepts or five points. The gospel is the gospel of Christ. Who is Jesus? What did he do? He came to fulfill prophecy. Jesus came. He lived a sinless life. He died for our sins and then he rose again. And all of those things are part of the gospel. Our faith and trust is not just in some of the things he taught, but in who he is and what he accomplished. And so... John Stott said this, someone asked him this question, what is the bare minimum of the gospel? What's the bare minimum? And Stott said, I don't want the irreducible minimum gospel, I want the full gospel. In other words, Jesus is not compartmentalized into just some laws. Jesus is God in human flesh who came to die for our sins. And when we consider what Jesus has done, 
the gospel was something that Paul wrote to the Romans that he was not ashamed of. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I really believe that one of the reasons why Paul wrote to the Romans that he was not ashamed wasn't because only that this was a reality in his life, but because I believe that maybe in Rome, there was a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. There was a temptation to be ashamed of the gospel. If you're a follower of Christ, is there a temptation today to be ashamed? Like, does the world kind of press in on us and create this sense of being ashamed of just simply declaring the truth of God? Not, not just a truth, but the truth. Because what happens is when you say this is the truth, we polarize very quickly in our, our culture, right? And our culture is really polarized. Have you seen, uh, do you remember the elections, the, the last elections, how there's blue states and red states? And wherever you stand, there's blue states and red states in the middle. It's kind of red and on the edges, it's kind of blue. And uh, you, you look at the polarization. Then you think about the polarization of not just politically, but when you say that you are a Christian and you're a follower of Christ, people are okay with that as long as you say that is just one way right? That's just one way. That's just one of many ways. Paul is writing to the Romans who are very proud of being Roman, very proud of their power structure, very proud of everything they had accomplished, very proud of their culture. And Paul is writing to the Romans and he's telling the Romans, in this world that you live in, do not be ashamed. And Paul is saying, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Again, think of Rome today with Hollywood and Washington and corporate America and the institutions of academics. That's really nothing in a sense compared to the prestige of Rome in Paul's day. The home of Caesar Nero where, where Christians were put in lambskins and fed to the lions. They were mocked. They were dipped in wax because they knew that they were the light of the world and Jesus taught that. And many times they were dipped in wax and they were burned. This was a very intense place to not be ashamed of the gospel. Because to stand with Christ meant somewhat of sacrifice. And let me say today, in the world we live in, to stand with Christ, it's no longer a place where we could be neutral. It never has been in God's eyes, but more and more in the world's eyes, there's no neutrality. We stand, and if we believe in the gospel and we proclaim that, we're gonna find that it's gonna polarize people, not because we're trying to do that, but because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Another way to think of this verse is that Paul is saying, I am proud of the gospel in the, fact of, in the, in the face of Roman pride. And the question is this, am I proud of Jesus? Am I proud of the gospel? Jesus said that if we confess um, our, our, him before men, He will confess us before his father who is in heaven. But if we deny him before men, he would deny us before his father who is in heaven. He calls us to the carpet on this. And Paul this morning, just pressing in and the gospel says, I'm not ashamed. And now he's going to tell us why. He's gonna say, let me tell you why I'm not ashamed of the gospel. In fact, despite all of Romans and all of their power, they were powerless to make themselves righteous before God. And Paul is going to say, the reason why I'm not ashamed, it's because it's the power of God to salvation. Morris in his commentary on Romans said this, the gospel is certainly news, but it is more than just information. It has power. The gospel is not advice to people suggesting that they lift themselves. It is power. It lifts them up. Paul does not say that the gospel brings power, but that the gospel is power, and it is God's power at that. And it is the only power that saves us. The message of the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's the power that saves us. Now, this is important to understand that when we consider being saved and what that means, we have to see that salvation isn't just being saved to God, deliverance, but it is salvation from something. So what are we saved from? 
the rest of this chapter and all the way through chapter three, you're going to find out that there are things that God saves us from. Not only saves us to, but saves us from. We're saved from hell. We're saved from enmity with God. We're saved from his wrath. And we're saved unto salvation. What does salvation mean? Salvation means we are saved from being damned or separated from God for all of eternity. And you know what? There are not a lot of places that you will hear that today. There are not a lot of places where you will hear that being taught or preached in a way that is balanced in God's word because we're so afraid at times of upsetting people or offending anyone. Now we should speak the truth and we should speak the truth in love. And I really believe that one of the most loving things that we could do is to tell people the truth. Because sometimes we say, well, I don't want to offend anyone. The reason why I don't say that is because I love them. And because I love them, I don't want to offend them. But yet if something is true and we're not willing to tell them the truth because of how they might think about us, that's really being selfish instead of being loving. Being loving is sharing the truth of how to be saved. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 remind us not only what we're saved um, from or how we're saved, but what we're saved to. It says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves. Okay, it's not like we saved ourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we didn't work it up. None of us can brag about getting to heaven and saying, I, I got here because, man, check out my highlight film. Like, look at what I did. Look at my resume. You know, I, I went on this mission trip and I helped this person and I read these books and I attended church and I gave this money. None of us can do that. We're not saved by works. None of us can boast because we're his workmanship and we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So again, in Romans 1.16, it says, for I am not ashamed of the uh, gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. For whom? For everyone who believes. For everyone who believes. This morning, do you believe that? If you believe this, your trust is in this, your trust is in the gospel of Christ, then guess what? Then it tells you that you have this hope and you have this salvation because your trust and your belief is in what Christ has done. And then for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So the gospel, the rest of the book of Romans, especially this first part up to chapter 12, is going to be about the Jewish mindset and the Greek mindset. The Jewish mindset, there was a, a Jewish ethnicity, but there was also a Jewish spirituality, a religion. And some of us grew up in religious homes. Maybe you even grew up in a Christian home. Your parents uh, were Christians. Maybe they were of a particular denomination. Maybe they were Methodist or they were Baptist or they were Presbyterian or Episcopalian or you know whatever the denomination. Maybe they were Pentecostal. Maybe they were part of Calvary Chapel. Wherever your parents were a part of, whatever heritage that you were a part of, realize that that mindset, all of us need to be saved. It doesn't matter the family that you were born into unless it's the family of God that you are born into because you're born again. So we cannot look back and say, the reason why I'm saved is because of my family and how I was brought up. We can't say our ethnicity or our religiosity or our background saves us. It's for the Jew first, and then it's also for the Greek. And by saying the Greek, by this time that Paul is writing, when he says the Greek, it's not only those that were Greek by nationality, but Greek by influence. Greek culture was so strong. Um, if you talk to people that are Greek, uh, it's funny how they have this heritage and how like everything comes from their Greek heritage and they see things through this Greek mindset. And the Greek mindset was a little bit different, a lot different than the Jewish mindset. It was more philosophical. And the Greek mindset was more about this wisdom when Paul was writing to the Romans. And what he's saying is that it's not just those that are good morally and religious and have this national pride, um, but it's those that are wise and those that think they don't need religion and those that have their own religion. Both groups of people need the gospel. And it is the only way to salvation. 
In verse 17, it says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Notice that it is in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. The word reveal, it's a passive word. It means it was revealed to us. So what's the difference between uh, passive and active? If it's active, I have to figure it out to try to understand it. I'm the one that in my wisdom and understanding will come to this place of knowledge. Now, we do lean into it and we ask God to help us, but unless he reveals these things to us, then we're, we're driving in a fog. But when God reveals these things to us in the gospel, how many of you have the experience of when you receive Christ and you said, Jesus, come into my life. God, show me that you're real. Help me to understand. And all of a sudden the Bible made sense. How many of you have had that experience? Like not all the Bible made sense, but parts of the Bible make sense. Because before that experience, let me tell you that it, it, it doesn't make sense. Before God reveals himself to us and before there's this opening up of our hearts to the Lord, man, the Bible, it just, it, it's overwhelming. And it is so amazing how the attitude of my heart will affect the understanding of my mind. Let me repeat that. The attitude of my heart will affect the understanding of my mind. Because if my heart is hardened and I'm resistant towards the things of God, there will be a lot of things that I don't understand. But when my heart is open and I say, God, please help me to understand these things, you know what? God is a very loving God. God wants us to understand. God wants us to know. If any of you are teachers, then you understand what this is like when a student has a bad attitude. I hate this subject. This is dumb. Why do I have to learn it? Try teaching your subject to a student that has that attitude. This is stupid. I don't even want to learn it. I don't have to learn it. This is dumb. I'm never going to use this. And it's like trying to teach a brick wall. Like you're trying to talk and it's just ricocheting and echoing back to you. But try teaching a student that has an attitude that says, this might be difficult, but help me to understand this. I want to learn this. I want to understand it. And all of a sudden, it just seems like you start to make some headway, even if it is difficult, because that heart affects the mind. It says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And so it's from faith to faith. It begins with God, and then it ends with God. It's the faith that God gives us. And it is revealed from faith to faith because we have to have that faith to say, God, speak to me and help me to understand um, the expression, I won't believe it until what? I see it. Uh, in reality, when it comes to God, so many times it's, I won't, I won't see it until I believe it. So when my heart is open, and I'm not talking about going against uh, my mind and saying you know, something non-logical, but, but when my heart is open to say, Jesus, if you're real, speak to me, show me. Help me to, to know who you are. And I seek after God. If you ever say that, then know this, that the Holy Spirit is drawing you because only God can draw people to himself. And if you have ever said that, and you're saying this right now, God, show me if you're real. Help me to learn more about you. Then know that the Holy Spirit, that God is actually seeking you and he's drawing you to himself. Respond to it. This morning, respond to it. Don't be resistant, respond. It says, as it is written, the just shall live by faith the just those that are justified those that are declared righteous by god will live by faith this is a, a direct quote from habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 but we also see this in romans 1 17 galatians 3 11 and hebrews 10 38 so if you see a truth of god a verse repeated over and over again throughout scripture know that this is very very important to God. And that's why when we, when we go through the word and we just see these things in God's, uh, you know, in, in the way that, in the proportion to God putting it in his word. So we're not overemphasizing one thing over another thing. We see God's emphasis and his emphasis through his word is that the just, those that are justified shall live by faith. Not just saved by faith, but we are going to live by faith. 
So right here, Paul's main focus is not how righteous people live, but how sinful people become righteous. If you talk to someone that doesn't know the Lord and they don't go to church and and they they know about God, maybe they, they know some things, so many times they think, I have to live my life right and then God will accept me. I have to change these things about my life and then after I change these things about my life, then I'll come to church, then I'll pray. But you know what we're to do? We're to come and just as we are, say, God, clean me up. God, do this work in my heart and my life. And so Paul's main focus in this passage is not about how righteous people live, but how sinful people become righteous. Now, happy Mother's Day. The second part of this is the wrath of God. Um, I, I remember one Mother's Day, I was just going through the Gospels. And on that Mother's Day in particular, we were going through a passage and the passage was about hell. And I was like, wow, you know, what a crazy Mother's Day message. But this morning, I really believe that God has something for us, that God's wrath also shows his goodness. God's wrath this morning, as we understand it in scripture, is going to show us that if we don't understand the bad news, then we will never respond to the good news. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for him or their unwillingness to admit it. Nothing keeps people away from Christ more than their inability to see their need for him or their unwillingness to admit it. The wrath of God brings us back to this place of realizing we need him. The wrath of God makes us understand that that we need Jesus. And some people say, well, I I don't need Jesus. That's good for you. I, I don't need him. And I've, this is probably the argument that I've encountered the most. I don't need Jesus. Because they either believe that they're not guilty or that they're not accountable or that God doesn't exist so it doesn't matter. The worst thing that a physician can do would be to cave in and agree with a patient who refuses to believe the blood tests. Imagine a physical is taken the blood test is given, and then the results are there. And someone, because they don't want to admit that they have a certain disease, or they don't want to admit um, high cholesterol, or they don't want to admit whatever that thing is that they don't want to admit, if, if a physician simply said, okay, if you don't want to believe it, then that's okay, then that person would not be considered a good physician or a good doctor, right? Because... If a doctor has that patient that refuses to believe there's a problem because of self-diagnosis, no, that can't, I can't have high cholesterol because I could run far. Do you remember uh, Jim Fix, I think it was? He wrote this book about running. He was, he was the guy that brought marathon, I mean, marathon running when I was a kid growing up was, that was extreme, right? People that ran marathons, they were like, superhuman they just didn't see it didn't seem possible and now like you see so many people run marathons they have the 26.2 or the 13.1 stickers on their cars it's like oh yeah i'm running another iron man i'm doing a triathlon it's become a normal thing but when jim fix first started writing this book called the joy of running he brought it to the forefront and america just started getting into this love for long distance running do you know how jim fix died He died of a heart attack. He died of a heart attack, even though he could run marathons because his high cholesterol was something that was inherent. It was something that was hereditary and he didn't know that his arteries were closing up because he felt so good and he could run for 26 miles. But if he would have looked at a test and and he would have done an EKG, he would have seen that there's not enough flow getting to his heart. And the worst thing that a good doctor can do is say, well, You know, you feel pretty good. Okay, then you've done your own self-diagnosis. Go ahead and keep going the way that you're going, even though the test shows that you could have a heart attack any day. And if that is true for a physician, our Christian responsibility through prayer and teaching is to bring people to the diagnosis in light of God's word and to offer the hope of the cure of the gospel. That is what God calls us to do. And we should be responsible to do that. Because why? Because we know the truth. 
And to not share those things is to be liable and to be responsible that we didn't share that with someone even though we knew ahead of time. If you knew that there was some terrorist act that was going to take place and you did nothing and said nothing, then you also would be considered responsible because you didn't do anything about it. If you knew that someone was in a harmful situation, uh, a person was in a, a place of danger, but you didn't share those things with them. You knew full well that they were in the place of danger, but you don't share with them or you share with them and they don't believe you and you just say, okay, well, you know what? You must be right. There is a responsibility for us as Christians not to keep the message to ourselves and not to just say, God saved me, but to realize that God wants to save others because God is a God of love and he is a God of wrath. Now, it says in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So the wrath of God, it's revealed. It, again, remember that we saw that God's, um, that, that God's power to salvation, that that is revealed, but also realize this, that his wrath is revealed. God's wrath is revealed to us. And his wrath is not like our wrath. Um, God is not doing an emotional flip out. He's not rage quitting because we won't listen to him. He doesn't just all of a sudden freak out and just lose his temper. And at the same time, the wrath of God is not an impersonal force of nature. There are two schools of thought in this. They're opposite extremes. One is that God is so personal, he's offended. And so he, he gets angry and he acts right away. And another view is this, that the other view is that God is this impersonal force of nature. And just like the law of gravity, if I jump off the building, I'm going to fall because that's just the way that that fact is. God's wrath, it is personal in that he is offended, but it is not this thing where he is out of control. In fact, God is very patient, not willing that any should perish. Do we realize that God is patient? I'm so glad that God is patient. God is so much more patient than I am. There are times when I feel like I'm being extremely patient. And then all I have to do is read scripture and think about my own life and realize how patient God is with me. How patient is God with you? How many times have you said you were gonna do something and you haven't done it? Or you said you weren't gonna do it and you did it? How many times have you ignored God? How many times have we gone our own way? So God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Ungodliness, those are offenses towards God. Ten Commandments, those are the ones about worship of God and going our own way. Unrighteousness of men, those are the commandments that have to do with other people. Don't lie, don't slander. You know, we're not to, we're not to uh, bear false witness. Um, we're not to commit adultery. We're not to try to um, murder. Those are towards others. The worship of God, worship of him alone. Um, you know, those things are towards God. And, and both of those things incur God's wrath, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And then the next thing that we see is this, under the wrath of God, it's truth suppression. It says at the end of verse 18, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So God's wrath is directed towards those who suppress the truth. Here's a good question. Why all the outrage against truth? Why suppress it? Why, why, why do people try to suppress truth? Push it down. That's what it means to suppress. Push that truth down. Not deal with it not admit it, not listen to it. Why? Because if we admit it, then we're accountable. So if we don't admit it, we just suppress it and push it down. Then we think, hey, we got away with it and we're not accountable and it doesn't really affect us or bother us. And the pattern in Romans 1 is a pattern we see in life. God reveals his glory. God reveals his wrath against evil and those who suppress the truth. God reveals his righteousness and love in the gospel. And then God reveals his power in saving people or his justice in his wrath. And as people try to suppress the truth, one of the ways that the truth rises up that people have to fight against is general revelation. Now, what is general revelation? Um, specific revelation is this book, the Bible. When I read the Bible, I see God's commandments. I see God's laws. I see God's word. 
general revelation is how God reveals himself to people even outside of his word. And let's read this in verses 19 through 21. Romans 1 verses 19 through 21. It says, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful but became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. God reveals things to people. His invisible attributes are clearly seen. We know that in Psalm 19, that the heavens declare the glory of God. So there are things that God reveals to all people in all places everywhere. When I was teaching in a public high school, we went through this section on logic. And I really loved going through this section on logic. I was, uh, I was teaching uh, in an um, English lit class, and I was teaching about how to look at fact versus opinion and how to form logical thoughts. And um, this topic came up because the students were kind of interested in it, and they started talking about it. It also came up in a Bible literature class that I, I, I had taught. And um, we, we talked about how this question is, is there a such thing as right and wrong? Now, that, doesn't that seem like an easy question, right? But you'd be amazed at how teaching all the way back in the 90s that I would have high school students say, no, nah, there really is no right and wrong. It just depends on what you think. It's just up to you. If you think it's right, it's right. If someone else thinks it's right, it's right. So I asked this question, okay, let's say that one of you is on the track team and you are a, you know, you're a two-miler. You run the two-mile you're in great shape and you're at the end of one of your workouts and you come to a bus stop and there's a, a little, little old lady with a cane and she is trying to make it onto the bus and she makes it on the bus and there's only one seat there. You are coming on behind her and there's one seat on the bus and you run and you dip your shoulder and you knock her down in the aisle and you take the last seat. I said, is that ever right? Just trying to ask an obvious question. Is that, is that ever right? And, and, you know, they're just staring at me like, I guess, I guess that's not. And even the people that tried to say, well, it's right for the guy that did that. Cause he was, everyone looked at him like, shut up. You know, you know, you know that that's not right. Because you know what we do? We, we suppress truth. There is right and wrong. God has built into us in any culture that you go into any part of the world. Now there are some cultural mores and standards of morality that, that yeah, culturally it's right in this culture and it's wrong in this culture. But in every culture that you go to around the world, murder just for the sake of murder, just taking life, just for the sake of taking human life, it is wrong in every culture. And I don't care where you go in, in the world. If people are standing in line for something, a concert or to get food or to get into a building, and you step in line to the front of the line and cut in front, everyone will yell at you and tell you to get to the back of the line. Why? Because everyone knows that that's wrong. And to say that there is no such thing as right or wrong is to suppress truth and to make life nonsensical. It doesn't make any sense if we just run our lives however we want. And if everyone just says, whatever is right for me is right for me, and whatever is right for you is right for you. Oh, what about intelligent design? I think about DNA. Now, before DNA, there were all these theories of, of how things just happen randomly. But when you look at the DNA strand, and how every single part of a DNA strand comes together, there's a genetic code that has to come together at the same time. When you look at um, a, a single cell, and you look at something called a, a flagella, the, the, the little tail, and there's like a, a motor, there's, there's parts to it, that there's this irreducible complexity, that if, if this gear and this gear don't come together at exactly the same time to cause that little tail to move in a cell, then that tail doesn't move. And if everything is random and everything is according to billions of years of just random happenings over time, what is the use of this gear if this gear doesn't exist? What is the use of the tail if there's no battery or power to, to move that tail? 
In other words, all of those things had to come into existence at the same time because if they didn't come into existence at the same time, there would be no need for those parts. It was Darwin who said that, that um, over the course of time, we are going to see millions of transitional forms. And these transitional forms are going to show that over, over time that my theory is true. But we don't have billions or millions of transitional forms because in intelligent design, think about sonar, think about bats and radar and dolphins and, and the way that they could throw sound off of objects and know what's there. Think about your eyeballs. You ever think about your eyeballs? Your eyeballs, they're, they're balls in your head. You know, you have a, a ball and then you have smaller balls and there's aqueous fluid inside these little balls filled with these rods and cones and it takes light images and I don't even understand, you know, I'm not scientific in this way, but it's upside down. We see things upside down and the lens, you know, it causes it to be right side up and all of these things make sense. What about beauty? If you go to any culture and you see a sunset at a beach, just a gorgeous sunset, does not every culture look at that and go, that is beautiful? In any place you go where there are trees and mountains, doesn't, doesn't it just declare that that is incredible? How do we know that that's beautiful? Unless there's something within us. See, there is something innate within us that God has placed in this general revelation to say, hello, I'm here and I created you and I created this place and I love you and I want you to turn to me. And to not do that means that we actively have to just push the truth down and say, I choose to turn my head and to say, blah, 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 and cover my ears and cover my eyes and say, I won't believe. Now with compassion and not with arrogance, I say this, that all of us were in that place at one point in time. And because God in his grace reveals himself to us, our heart response at the time that he reveals himself will make all the difference in the world as to whether or not we are part of that everyone who believes. That salvation comes to those that open up their heart to say, God, I believe, help my unbelief. By the way, this morning, it's okay to come to God with your doubts. It's okay to, to say, you know what? I'm not so sure, but God, I'm, I'm by faith believing. And so would you help me to grow in my faith? Would you show yourself to me? When I open up your word, would you reveal yourself to me? And I could receive him into my life, even though I don't understand. I, I, I don't understand this whole book. I, I don't. There are parts of it that are, that are confusing. There are parts of it that are beyond me as a human being. So general revelation now, as we close, this is what happens. And the sad part is that people make this exchange. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They professed to be wise, but they became foolish. They, they traded, they made this exchange. Instead of the glory of God, I wanna choose the glory of man. Verse 24, Therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. It's a terrifying thing in the Bible when it says that God gave them up, which means this, God will allow someone to go the way that they're going to go. It says, it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart in the book of Exodus, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart which means that if we are going to say, God, I'm gonna push you out, I'm gonna suppress the truth, and I will choose not to even believe and follow the trails in this general revelation and specific revelation of your word, I will choose to go the opposite way, even when evidence leads me towards you, then eventually God allows people to go their own way. Verse 25, notice this exchange comes out again. Who exchanged the truth of God for what? The lie. No, it doesn't say a lie. Who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. And what is the lie? The lie all the way back in Genesis chapter three is this. I can be God. I call the shots. I'm in control, not God. I do what I'm gonna do. I'm not accountable to anyone and I could do I, whatever I believe, that's what's true. In verse 26, for this reason, again, for, because they exchanged the truth of God for the lie, 
For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also, the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do the things which are not fitting. Now, let me just pause here and we will get to the rest of this chapter next week. I I wanted to pause here because when it comes to this part where it says in verse 28, receiving in themselves the, the penalty of their error, which was due, God doesn't need to punish for every wrong choice at times Um, in that there's not like a direct correspondence to the thing that I do, then all of a sudden something is going to to happen where lightning is going to strike or a a pot of, you know, a flower pot's going to fall on my head. Sometimes we think of God's wrath as that. Like, I'm going to get a flat tire. I'm going to get in an accident. Something bad's going to happen because I've sinned. You know what? Sometimes God's wrath is this. Do what you want to do. Sometimes the wrath of God is God saying, Go ahead. I've warned you. I love you. I've pointed another way. I've reached out to you. I'm trying to help you. But go ahead. See, they received in themselves the due penalty. And sometimes when it comes to reaping what we sow in God's wrath, sometimes it just means God allows us to go in that way. Any person that allows that sin to overtake them, no matter what that sin is, if it is lust, a person that is fully given over to lust will destroy themselves. A person that is fully given over to power, they will self-destruct and ruin every relationship that they know. A person that is fully given over to greed and more and wanting more than other people, that person will find themselves empty and lonely and broken because what they thought would satisfy does not satisfy. And in whatever those things are, when we give ourselves over to those things and just say, God, you are out of my life. I'm gonna do things my way. Part of the penalty of God's wrath is God allows us to go in that way. And one of the errors that we could make is to say, well, you know what? It just matters what what you think. Um, It's totally up to you. No, God is the one that is the creator. And if he's the one that is the creator, then there is an accountability to him. And when it comes to homosexuality, I think there are two mistakes that people can make that are Christians at times. One of the mistakes is not calling it sin. This is very plain. Um, Charles Spurgeon, just so you know, wouldn't even read this part of Romans publicly in church because he felt like it was so, it was just so... um, over the top as far as the wrath of God and realizing how debased people could get. And he would tell them, this is God's word. Go home and read this and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you. But in our day and age, this is normal. See, he he taught at a time when this was unthinkable. So that was hard for him to teach through that because it was unthinkable. It's no longer not only unthinkable, but it is so socially acceptable that to not accept that is to be thought of as bigoted. To not accept that philosophy, theology, and lifestyle is to be considered narrow-minded and hateful. And I want to let you know that God's word proclaims this. And one of the mistakes that we can make as Christians is to not call it sin. Let me tell you the second mistake we can make. We could categorize it as a greater sin than other sin. And that also is a great mistake that we can make as Christians. To single out that sin... Because what you find at the end of this chapter is this. There is a list of 21 things that God lists in here that break down a a society and a culture and a world that degenerates when people do not glorify God. And notice the list of acceptable sins, uh, unrighteousness, different kinds of sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, envy. Anyone envious? Murder? Anyone hateful? Strife? Any of you strife? Any deceit? Have you lied? Evil-mindedness, whispers, gossip, any gossipers here? Any backbiters, haters of God, violent? Have you been proud? Have I been boasting? Have I been an inventor of evil things? 
Any of us been disobedient to parents? Undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving? Anyone here unforgiving at times? Unmerciful? All of us, it says, who knowing the righteousness judgment of God, those who practice such things are deserving of death. And not only um, do they do the same, but also those who who approve of those who practice such things. May we not make the mistake of being soft on sin and saying, well, it's not really sinful. And may we also not make the mistake of zeroing in on specific sins and making those the main sins that we focus on. See, God speaks the truth this morning through his word. His word is that all of us, every person in this room, everyone watching online, everyone that is in earshot of hearing this, we are all guilty and deserving of God's wrath. And the only way to not receive that wrath is to put ourselves in a place of humbleness before him and say, God, forgive me. And I put my trust in the gospel, what Jesus has done. So, um, there will be more that we get into next week. If you have any questions, you could text them in and we'll, we'll get into them a little bit more. But I just want to close in prayer. And if any of you have not received Christ as your Lord and Savior, it is not about performance. It is not about I have to get everything in line and then I can come to God. It is humbling ourselves and saying, God, please work in my life and forgive me. And I pray this morning that each one of us has that open heart towards the Lord. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. Lord, those things are so evident. They're so clear. But Lord, your wrath is also a part of you because you are a just God. And Lord, I find it to be amazing that your wrath was satisfied on Christ when he died for our sins. Lord, I would pray for anyone here this morning that has never received Christ as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. And if that is you, if there has been some tug at your heart, some inclination to seek after God, just know this, that that is God reaching out to you. And if you would like to respond, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I would ask that you would pray this with me. Jesus, would you please come into my life? Forgive me for my sin. Lord, I confess and I admit that I have been the one in charge of my own life. I've gone my own way. And I ask you to come into my life and fill me with your spirit. Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for showing me that you love me. And I pray that you would help me to follow you all the days of my life. And then, Father, for those of us that are followers of Christ, those that have been born again, we ask you, Lord, that the message of the gospel would be something that we never, it would never get old. It would never be something that we cease to be thankful for. And I also pray that, God, you would give us faith to be able to proclaim this to others. That like the doctor who has the diagnosis and the cure, that, Lord, we wouldn't settle for someone that says, by self-diagnosis, I'm not sick. Jesus, we know that you came as the great physician to call those that are spiritually sick. So we want to respond to that, Lord, and we ask that you would use us in Jesus' name. Amen.